Hey, it's Bill Simmons here. I have some good news. You can listen to the Ringer Podcast Network on TuneIn. With the TuneIn Audio app, catch the latest episodes from the Bill Simmons Podcast, Ringer University, the NBA Show, the NFL Show, Channel 33, and more. Or catch up on past episodes that you may have missed. Plus, you can even take us with you on the road with TuneIn On Demand. So download the app from iTunes or Google Play and listen to the Ringer Podcast Network on TuneIn today. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, his stove is hotter than the beach bodies of Michael Kopech and Johan Mankata combined. Michael Bauman, my fellow writer for The Ringer. Hello, Michael. Hi. Can't chat. Stove's too hot. (laughs) Gotta move. It's so hot that a giant contract was just signed as we were about to start recording, so... Now we'll try to include that too. So we're going to try to cram as much as we can into this episode. Obviously, this has been a crazy week in baseball as we sort of expected that it would be in our most recent episode. So later in this episode, we do have a guest and despite all of the mega trades that have been made this week, I think his deal might be the most surprising and intriguing of the offseason, at least to me. It's Eric Thames, who is the Brewers' new first baseman, and for those who haven't followed his career, he just spent three seasons in Korea after being a big leaguer for a few years. In Korea, in those three seasons, he hit 348, 450, 720 with 124 home runs, and he came back to the big leagues, and the Brewers gave him a three-year, $16 million guaranteed contract with a team option for a fourth year, which, frankly, he sounds as surprised about as we were. Yeah. And meanwhile, they also non-tendered their first baseman from 2016, Chris Carter, who tied for the National League lead in home runs. So it's an unlikely sequence of events. <laughs> we're going to talk to him about his time in Korea and what it was like to hit like Barry Bonds and why the Brewers believed in him and what it's like to relearn the league after being away for a few years. But first, we have to get to as much as we possibly can about the glut of signings and trades that have been made at the winter meetings this week. So our apologies to Wilson Ramos and Matt Holliday and Tyler Thornburg. You do not rate this week. We do not have time for you because we have to get to so many other moves. And those are sincere apologies, because I was really gearing up to talk about, you know, as Baseball Internet's premier Wilson Ramos fan, I was gearing up (laughs) to talk about that that signing. But no time, we got to move. Yeah, best catcher in in Rays history, probably. Yeah. Which is not a, a high bar to clear. All those players are good and interesting, but we have to prioritize here. So we're going to start with the White Sox since they've been the most active team this week. And we'll just go in chronological order with the Chris Sale trade, which is also the Kopech and Moncada trade. So this is the one that I think a lot of people were expecting. Obviously, Sale has been on the block for quite a while now. And it was just a matter of when the White Sox would finally decide that they were going to stop hanging around mediocrity and get a purpose. (laughs) And it seems now that they have fully embraced the rebuild and they are going to try to channel the Cubs, their crosstown rivals, as as closely as they can. And they're going to be bad for a while, but they got a really excellent return in this trade, I think. Do you agree? Yeah, I think I was a little a little less bullish on this for the White Sox than a lot of other people were, but I think that's just because I'm I'm a little higher on sale than I think the the consensus is, and a little lower on Kopech. Um, uh-huh. 
you know, you wrote in your piece that you know Sale hadn't been quite as good the past couple season as seasons as the the seasons before that. And I think I had been sort of grading him on a curve for his entire career as opposed to just the past year or two, or even like taking into account the the diminishing strikeout rate or anything like that. That said, he's still got a long way to decline being 27 and still being a guy that I would have put in the top three on my Cy Young ballot this year uh, mm-hmm. before he stops being worth this. I mean, it's a, I like that he costs this much. I think that's the, my big takeaway, like he is or has been in the recent past, like there are good players and then there are like transcendent players and the transcendent players should cost the number one prospect in baseball. Plus a guy who can throw a hundred miles an hour, plus a couple other pieces beyond that. And, you know, I think even more. So I think the Red Sox are, they're going to add him to a rotation that already had David Price and Rick Porcello, who for as much as I snarked his Cy Young victory was really good last year. Like legitimately, you know, like a five win five-win pitcher and the White Sox got Yoan Mankata. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think yeah, everybody's going to be happy. This trade involved two things that we probably never see. I mean, to see the best prospect in baseball, according to most of the rankers currently traded, that is not something that happens. And the number one prospect who is a position player is one of the most valuable assets in the game. So that is not something that teams move lightly. On the other hand, you also don't move pitchers like Chris Sale lightly, who is under team control with a couple option years for the next three seasons at extremely reasonable rates, and he should be worth much more than he'll make. So he's a guy that you have to give up a ton to get. And obviously Dave Dombrowski is the man to make that sort of move. He is done nothing since taking over in August of 2015, but trade Ben Charrington's prospects, basically, and try to make the team better in the short term. And I think he has. I think the Red Sox were the best team in the American League last year. I think they're very likely to be the best team in the American League next year. So it just comes down to what your tolerance for mortgaging the future is. And if this were 15 years ago, I think every Red Sox fan would be thrilled to make this move. Now with three championships under your belt and knowing how playoff baseball works and even having sale, you're not so much more likely to make the World Series once you make the playoffs, which they probably would have anyway. So you're talking about improving your World Series odds relatively slightly in exchange for a guy who could be a cornerstone for years to come and help you get back to the playoffs a few extra times, which is obviously the important thing. So I can understand if some Red Sox fans are looking at this and thinking we're going to be the Tigers a few years from now, but they do have the young core and Bogarts and Betts and Bradley. And so this team is sort of Dombrowski proof for the time being. That's what I was going to say is the other big thing. The big thing about this is great as Moncada could be and as majorly ready as he appears to be, they got Chris Sale for nobody that they were using. and. Beyond that, like, yeah, like you said, mortgaging the future, Bogarts uh, was 23 last year, Betts was 23, Bradley was 26. Those guys are all uh, still under team control for several more years. And they they didn't give up Andrew Benatendi either, who as Mm -hmm. much as, you know, we've been talking about Moncada as the the consensus number one prospect, which he might be, but baseball prospectus just ranked Benatendi as a a better prospect than Mankata. And I 
would be disinclined to dis- disagree with them. So Yeah, I mean, if you're the Red Sox and your weakness was your rotation and you wanted to improve that in one move, there's no better way to do that than to trade for Chris Sale. And yeah, he was slightly less effective on a batter-per-batter basis last year, and he sort of intentionally pitched to contact, or at least that's what he and Don Cooper discussed doing in spring training. And then, yeah, he threw more fastballs, he threw slower fastballs, he didn't strike out as many batters, and that would be a bad thing, although if he was trying to last longer in games, he did do that, and he set a career high in innings pitched, and he was still excellent. So I'll be curious to see whether the Red Sox try to change him back to really strikeout heavy sale, but even if he continues to be the guy he was last year, he's one of the five to ten best pitchers in baseball. Yep. Next! Moving on. All right. <laughs> okay, we're calling that one. So Adam Eaton was traded also from the White Sox to the Nationals, and the Nationals were trying to get Chris Sale, and they put most of the prospects that they were going to put in that Chris Sale deal that didn't come together into the trade that did come together for Adam Eaton. And obviously, Eaton is not as big a name as Sale and is not quite as valuable a player as Sale, but Adam Eaton is always underrated i think i've been an adam eaton fan for a while and this goes back to in 2013 i was an editor at baseball prospectus and we put out our top 100 prospect lists and i didn't meddle with those i'm not a scouting guy i'm not a prospect expert but we didn't have adam eaton on our list which seemed insane to me because he had made his major league debut In 2012, he hit very well. He hit like Adam Eaton hits, basically, for 22 games. And yeah, he didn't seem at the time like a really high-ceiling prospect, but he was already in the big leagues producing, and that alone has to get you on a prospect list. And yet it didn't, I guess, because his tools were just not all that impressive. And even now that he has been a really excellent player for three years in a row— I don't think he quite gets the credit that he deserves. Yeah, that 360 OBP is going to look really good hitting in front of Rendon and and Harper. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an insane trade. And <laughs> it, so Eaton to the Nationals is, I mean, it fits because Danny Espinosa was not good at shortstop last year. And this trade allows them to put Eaton in center and move Trey Turner back to shortstop where he'll fit better than than he did in center field, and that's good. But the other thing is that Eaton has put up inconsistent defensive numbers. He was mm-hmm. good in center for a year, then really bad in center for a year, then Jason Hayward level good and right. So I don't know. I think a lot of the value of this for the Nationals depends not only on his bat, but how well the glove plays in center field. Also, yeah. you know, we just talked about how Sale is one of those transcendent super superstar guys. Eaton's a good player, and that's you might be a bigger Adam Eaton fan than I am, but like they just traded Lucas Giolito and and uh, Ronaldo Lopez and Dade Dunning for him, and like those are mm-hmm. that's the top pitching prospect in baseball plus another top one hundred guy plus another guy in Dunning who's probably going to be a big leaguer who Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs said it might he might uh, wind up outperforming his college teammates AJ Puck and Logan Shore who both won the top fifty picks this year. I don't know if I agree with that, but Dunning like. Dunning's really good, and he's the third best guy they traded for for Adam Eaton. I was on the fence about the sale trade, but this haul is just so over the top. It makes mm-hmm. this just a slam dunk week for Rick Hahn and the White Sox for me. 
yeah, I don't see how they could have done better at, at jumpstarting this rebuild. And and yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, Giolito, his luster has faded slightly, but still pretty lustrous. And Lopez is too. The thing I would say about Eaton is that he is 28 and he's signed for the next five seasons, all at very reasonable rates. And that is a lot of value you're acquiring for a guy who's become a better hitter and yeah, he does have a sort of Cespedes-esque split between his center field defensive stats and his right field defensive stats. So it'll be interesting to see whether he does kind of come back to the pack in center again after being fantastic in right when we had Tom Tango and Darren Willman from MLB Advanced Media on an earlier episode of this podcast. They were raving about Eaton and how his stat cast stats look. Apparently he just is kind of the the model of the perfect corner outfielder. So we'll see whether he transfers that back to center. But yeah, I like him a lot. He's one of those guys who just is good at everything. He seems to be a good defender. He's an above average hitter. He's an above average base runner. And that kind of guy who's not the best at any one particular thing, I think tends to get a little overlooked. So you wrote a giant piece about the White Sox farm system, which has totally transformed itself in the span of just over a day. So what did you focus on? So what I focused on is a group of seven pitchers, four guys who were with the organization already that they had spent high draft picks on and three guys that they acquired in the past week. Uh, so it's Carlos Rodon, uh, Alec Hansen, Zach Birdie, Carson Fulmer, who were the, the guys who were there already. And, um, Kopech, uh, Lopez, and Giolito, who they've acquired in the past couple of days. And all those guys, what they have in common is, is at least one huge, one huge tool, one pitch, one, you know, movement. Or Giolito had one of the best high school curveballs ever. Rodon had one of the best college sliders ever. Kopech and Birdie throw 100 miles an hour and change. And what all, like, the, one of the big weaknesses, perhaps the fatal weakness for most of them, is an inability to command the ball within the strike zone. So Rodon got screwed as a rookie because he was walking four, you know, four uh, batters per nine innings, that sort of thing. And so this gives them from this makes them not only a good farm system but an interesting farm system because you're handing over all this raw material to Don Cooper, who's one of the half a dozen pitching coaches in the big leagues who has this sort of miracle worker label. And whether it's teaching them a new pitch, altering altering the the pitch mix, or um, smoothing out the mechanics, in the case of a guy like Fulmer or Kopech, you know, there's a there's just so much potential here for somebody like uh, Giolito or maybe even Rodon to develop into a Chris Sale like pitcher. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is a lot of these guys are ready now. You know, uh, Lopez, Giolito, Fulmer, and there's this is a long list. Yeah. So, uh, so for for those guys, I think I, I might have thrown Mankata in there. Pitched in the big leagues last year. Birdie made it up to AAA. Like everybody's assuming, I think I'm assuming this too that they're going to continue the tank and and trade Quintana, Melky Cabrera, yeah. Todd mm-hmm. Frazier. But my contention is they've even though they've lost probably their two best players, this is a lot of talent that they're bringing up and using to fill holes that might not necessarily have had good players to begin with. And mm-hmm. Tim Anderson had a pretty solid rookie year. So if they, this is it, like if they just plug these young guys into the lineup, they could be back up to 500 in a year or two if they want to go that route. Maybe not 
go the you know decide that they're gonna go completely in the ground lose 100 games or whatever i mean even mm-hmm. with this much talent on the roster it might be tough to lose more than 90 games anyway yeah i mean i talked to a couple of prospect writers after the sale trade and they said that just the sale trade alone getting Mankata and Kopech, who immediately became the team's top two prospects pushed the white Sox from somewhere around the the bottom third of teams to maybe the the precipice of the top third of teams and that was before the giant nationals hall so it's amazing how quickly they've turned themselves around and they had some really valuable trade chips so they seem to have maximized the value that they could get from them and I mean, their farm system has been depleted for years because, of course, when Kenny Williams was the GM, he always wanted to go for it and contend and trade at the deadline. And it's really hard to do that and still have a strong farm system. So it's impressive that they have managed to do this. But, of course, trading the players that they've decided to trade, they they should be able to do this. Does it say anything to you that these prospects were movable? I mean, there was... A time it seemed like a few years ago when teams just decided not to trade prospects, but now we have seen two of the best prospects in baseball get dealt in the same week, and I don't know whether that reflects any sort of move in how teams evaluate players or whether it's just a product of a really weak free agent market. It might be a product of the weak free agent market. I'm a little, I'm less shocked that the Red Sox gave up Mankata just because that's what it was going to take to get sale like that either mm-hmm. him or Ben attendee or um, you know to a certain extent I'm surprised it's not both but Giolito's just been like there's been so much hype for a 22 year old who you know he's been this huge name on in prospect circles since he was a senior in high school and just seeing the Nationals give up on him and when you factor in they threw in Lopez and they threw in Dunning and they got back got back Eaton like that's a it's not a great haul for him. So either he was either the nationals are low on him or there's just something broken that we don't know about, about him. But if this is a shift, like if teams are going to be a little looser with throwing around their top prospects, I think that's good for the game. I think if it doesn't do the, the sport any good, if it takes forever to complete a rebuild like this, you know, like, the Astros had that multi-year prolonged tank, and they and they started drafting high school guys like Carlos Correa uh, when they were getting the number one pick. And it's like baseball's still not quite all the way back here. And having the White Sox be able to just like to go from we just traded Sale and Eaton to like that heartbreak to, but look who we got instead, and look how soon they're going to be in the majors. I think that's good. For the White Sox. And I think, you know, just having more chips on the table from a transaction perspective is, you know, it makes the game more fun to follow. Agreed. All right. So just before we started talking, the Yankees signed Aroldis Chapman to a five year, $86 million deal. This follows on the heels of Brian Cashman's comment about how the Red Sox are the, the Golden State Warriors of baseball. Okay. Well, this also comes shortly after the Giants signed Mark Melanson to a four-year, $62 million deal with an opt-out after the first couple of years and a full no-trade clause. So I don't know if either of these destinations or dollar totals is really all that surprising. We sort of figured that these guys were going to cash in coming off excellent stretches and also the emphasis on relievers that we saw in last year's postseason. And 
Chapman reportedly had another five-year deal. He was even offered more money, so it doesn't seem like this is some Yankees outlier throwing their money around. This is what the market is now, and obviously these are two of the best relievers in baseball. Is it crazy to give any reliever this kind of record contract? No. I mean, I I think relievers have always been underrated by sort of, if it's not explicitly dollars per war analysis, then sort of that line of thinking because they have such an impact in high leverage situations as you and I both wrote about extensively last year. Mm -hmm. Melanson to San Francisco isn't that surprising. The other two deals are a little bit more interesting, but we can talk Mm -hmm. about them in, in whatever order you want. Yeah, well, so the one that I didn't mention in the intro to Closer Madness is one that you wrote about, and it's a trade of Jorge Soler to the Royals for Wade Davis going back to the Cubs. And so the Cubs have managed to get a closer without signing him to an enormous contract. Davis is on an expiring contract, but they did have to give up a talented player who hasn't quite put it all together, but still could and is not without value even as it is. So yeah, I mean, I guess the reliever valuation thing comes down to how you're going to use them. I don't know whether we'll see anything different. Chapman wasn't really used in any kind of unorthodox way when he was with the Yankees last year. But of course, they had two excellent closers with him at the time. And so maybe that sort of restricted what you could do with him. But he seems like a guy who likes to be used like a typical closer, although obviously he is amenable to other ways, as we saw in October. So if this past season's postseason is indicative of what we are going to see from this point forward and teams are going to continue riding their relievers harder and harder in October every year, then it does make some sense if you expect to be a playoff team and the Yankees might not be this year, but at some point over this five-year span, certainly they expect to be and should expect to be. And if you know that, and Chapman's not old, he's obviously inning per inning, maybe the best reliever there is. And so if you're committed to using him more than you would in the regular season, once those games get really important, then that does justify the dollars, I think, or at least that's the the best way to do it. Yeah. And I think I'd go so far as to say if Melanson's worth 462, then Chapman without a draft pick attached, five Mm -hmm. for 86 seems like, I mean, not to be too blunt about this, it seems like a domestic violence discount. That's part of it. And, uh, you know, I I guess the fact that he's going to the Yankees now means that everyone who was rooting against him because of that can now also root against him because he's on the Yankees. So that works out nicely. Yeah. And we know like we know that that didn't bother Brian Cashman before. It's just right. Not to belabor this, it just seems like, you know, all I want in terms of Major League Baseball teams dealing with players who commit acts of violence against women is the idea that they take it seriously. And this just mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't seem like they, the, like the Yankees have, have taken Chapman seriously after they, they were pretty open about being uh, profiteers and benefiting from that situation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's to say that a, a guy had to take a discount when he is blowing away the record for a reliever. It sounds strange, but yeah, I mean, if anything, I would have expected Chapman to get more entering mm-hmm. this offseason. So that is where we are. So you wrote about the Davis-Solaire trade. Is this Cubs being clever and not having to dip into the free agent market? Both sides seem to get something they needed and, and wanted here. This this seems like a steal to me. Like, I, mm-hmm. I guess... You know, I wrote 
1,800 words about this, which is probably more than the trade deserved. So I guess my question for you is, am I just completely wrong about Jorge Soler? Like, it just doesn't seem like he's that good to me. And it seems like Wade Davis is, on a per-inning basis, the best reliever in baseball over the past three years. And even if he got hurt last year, and even if he's getting old, there's a long way for him to go down for for Chapman or Zach Britton or, or Melanson or Kenley Jansen to catch him. And... $10 million mm-hmm. for a year is not that much money for the Cubs, and Soler is their fourth outfielder. And if you're still waiting for a breakout for a guy with that much swing and miss with that little defensive value after two pretty bad full major league seasons, I think you're going to wait a long time. So yeah. I asked you a question, and so what do you think? <laughs> well, I think it makes sense for the Cubs since he didn't really have a role with them. I mean, I, he wouldn't have been a starter. He probably would have just been rusting away on the bench because they have too many players for not enough positions. So I think it makes sense for them to get what they could for him. I don't dislike this for the Royals. I, if you told me that Solaire were going to take a step forward, I, I wouldn't be shocked. He He produces when he makes contact, and you're right, he doesn't make contact enough, and so he's been, what, a slightly above average hitter, which is not good for a a corner outfielder who is not very good at corner outfielding. So obviously he was a top prospect, his power is respected, he has potential to be better than he has, and... Just from playing a full season, I think his his numbers will at least superficially look better because he because of injuries and because of the the Cubs position player crush he he hasn't really done that. So I think it makes some sense for both sides, but I think it was pretty clever of the Cubs to not have to dip into the free agent market. Although theoretically the the free agent market prices should also affect the trade market for mm-hmm. closers, but. It seems like they got a good one. And and yeah, I mean, it it does come down to elbow injuries, and that's a scary thing. And Davis has been excellent, but a lot of that is that he never allows home runs, which I'm not going to say is a fluke. It's it's not. Well, it's less likely to continue in Wrigley than Kauffman Stadium for a while. Right, that too. So I don't think Davis is quite the dominant guy that we saw during the Royals World Series runs, but... I think he is what the Cubs needed, and it seems like a smart move, but I can see the logic in it for Kansas City also. All right, so lastly, quickly, let's just touch on Ian Desmond to the Rockies for five years and $70 million. Yeah. Uh, this doesn't make a ton of sense because the Rockies just gave up number 11 pick, which is the first un- unprotected pick in the draft to sign a guy who... As great as he was in the first half, sort of cratered in the second half, and a lot of whose value was wrapped up in his ability to play center field and then move him to first base. So mm-hmm. this sort of feels like a smokescreen for a Charlie Blackman trade. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my my takeaway. Although good for Ian Desmond for finally getting paid. That's yeah, the, sure, and I I guess good for the Rockies for spending. Maybe I we, wanted them to spend this on Trumbo or Edwin Encarnacion. Like well, yeah, Desmond's got power, but he us. doesn't have he doesn't <laughs> have fun you know fun cores power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're a team that we have said nice things about on this podcast and seem to be trending in the right direction, and maybe yeah, are getting to that next year. Yeah, and they're getting to that point where you start to think about supplementing your young players with free agents. I don't know that this was the best possible free agent to do that with, 
but yeah i was thinking uh well if they're not going to use him in the outfield why not use him at one of the other infield positions and i was like oh yeah they've got pretty good young second base third base shortstop right now so that's Mm -hmm. it's a good core all right all right well i think we've done it and hopefully there won't be 10 more moves between now and when this is posted yeah i'll see you at seven o'clock in the morning after uh (laughs) jose Quintana gets traded yes right all right so We are going to take a very quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we will be back with Eric Thames. Hey everyone, the Ringer Podcast Network is now playing on TuneIn. And while you can listen to every episode on the TuneIn Audio app for free, TuneIn is giving listeners 20% off its premium subscription for a limited time. You can catch the home calls of your favorite sports team at home or on the road. That's every team, every play, every game. And I can vouch for that. When I was in California last summer with the Sonoma Stompers, a lower-level independent league baseball team that I co-wrote a book about, I used to listen to their games on the TuneIn app. And if the Sonoma Stompers are on TuneIn, then you can bet that your team is too. So if you love sports, you'll love TuneIn Premium. Plus, with TuneIn Premium, not only will you get to hear your favorite sports team live, you'll also get great commercial-free music from around the world and unlimited access to every audiobook in the library, live or on demand. You can read my book about the Sonoma Stompers. So go to TuneIn.com forward slash The Ringer to get TuneIn Premium at 20% off. Download the TuneIn app and subscribe today. All right, so we are joined now by Eric Thames, who just got back from putting up Barry Bond stats in Korea for three years and signed a three-year deal with the Brewers to play first base. Eric, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So three years. I, I know that you got a lot of interest from major league teams, but three years is a pretty aggressive offer. Is that what you were expecting to, to get a guaranteed deal like that coming back after being away for a few years? Yeah, I mean, the one uh, the one thing for me, I wanted to have a job I want to be able to play every day and not have like a platoon job or a minor league. You know, I wanted a chance to play every day and kind of show what, what I can do now. In my ripe old age. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you've done this in both directions now, but is it more complicated to to negotiate an intercontinental move than it is to sort of move internally? Yeah, I mean, like my agent, Adam Karen, did a great job. Like like the way he worked the deal and everything um, was amazing. And like, from a personal standpoint, I had, I had no idea all the stuff was going on. I mean, I was still playing in the postseason over there in Korea, so all the stuff was going down. I was kind of, you know, a spectator kind of hearing about things after the fact. So, yeah, it was pretty exciting. So if we can go back a bit, what made you decide to make that move after 2013? And were you at the time thinking, I can come back, my goal is to come back? Have you considered making this move in the intervening years? Uh, Well, in 2013, I was in Baltimore in AAA, and then um, I got DSA, I got picked up by Houston, and I played one game in the postseason for their AAA team. And I, you know, I, I get called up, you know, because they, they kind of hinted to, to me that I get called up at the end of the year, and I didn't. And I, I was kind of upset about that. You know, that's just like, you know, the politics of baseball. So I was kind of upset about that. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to go to Venezuela and go make a little bit of money, get more at-bats, and hopefully, you know, some teams will uh, will be up and watch me play and see what happens. And then all of a sudden, my agent called me. He was like, hey, dude, you know, like, Korea's on the line. You know, like, would you want to go over there? And I was like, no chance. Like, <laughs> like I was 27 then, so I was like, you know, I still thought I was young. Like, you know, back then there was a stigma. Like, if you go to Asia, like only like the 35 year olds or like the old veterans go there and they kind of end their career, you know. So, mm-hmm. 
I was like, no chance. I still have, you know, opportunity here. I still have a good chance. And um, eventually, you know, like the money is like, okay, I kind of weighed out. Okay, it'd be a nice start for me to kind of get away from the U.S. style baseball to go for a year, make some good money, that in a bank account, and then have a chance to come back. So I was like, all right, I'll go. Sign me up. And then three years later, I was still there <laughs> having fun. It was, it was a good, it was really fun. Like grinding in AAA to go over there and kind of new culture, I knew everything. It was like a life-changing you know, experience for me. And what is, you know, we can sort of see how the the stats compare, the money compares from American baseball to Korean baseball, but what's the lifestyle like? You know, was it like being a big leaguer over there, or was it more like being a, a AAA player? Oh, no, it's definitely, I mean, you're a rock star. Because, like, <laughs> as a foreign player, you, you stand out so much. And hitting 47 home runs a year probably doesn't hurt either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You know, walking around like, you know, tattoos and the beard, like these people, I mean, you, you do not, you know, blend in at all. So, yeah, a lot of pictures and autographs, you know, which is, it comes to the territory, which is a lot different from here. I mean, if, if I go get a, a coffee now, like nobody really cares. Like, even if you're like really famous, like people like kind of Americans don't really care. But there it's like complete opposite, you know, like you're famous and pictures and autographs and you get treated like, like royalty, it's great. So if you had to characterize Korean style baseball, is there a, a distinctive style? Is there something about the way they play the game there that sets it apart? I would say tricky. Um, <laughs> you know, if I was say like, you know, like, like pitchers, like pitchers don't throw as hard as they do in the, in the major league. So guys, you know, rely on their off speed and like they try to like, you know, they nibble in the strike zone, they throw like slow pitches and then like, you know, fastball and then more slow pitches. And then like, you know, their defenses and offenses, like a lot of like trick plays and slash bunts and like all this like stuff like that. So yeah, you have to have your head in the swivel a little more over there. <laughs> it was fun. It was, it was some, yeah, some good stories over there. So when you went over there, was it like, I mean, you're slugging 700, almost 800 in your MVP year. Was it like a Superman sort of thing where you stay the same, but you go to a different planet and the rays of the sun bathe you and suddenly you're super powerful? <laughs> or did you make changes? Like, were you actually a better hitter when you were there than you had been in oh. the big leagues? Actually, it's kind of funny. Like, you know, I've been on Instagram and online. I see, like, videos of, like, you know, fans put together videos of, like, my my hitting from, you know, 2011, 2012. And it's, like, my swing and body is so different now than it was then. You know, yeah, like, I changed my swing path. Instead of trying to hit home runs and uphill, all this stuff, you know, my swing is a lot more flatter now. I have more plate discipline than I had before, which is kind of, I mean, in 2011, 12, I was trying to hit home runs. I was trying, I was trying to walk. Like Barry Bonds, I was trying to hit Barry Bonds home runs too, and it's like, man, I was trying too hard, you know. So I started chasing more pitches out of the zone, which obviously didn't work out well in my favor. So I went over there and I learned how to be patient, kind of see pitches and swing up balls in my strike zone, and and yeah, the, the flat swing. I mean, if I increase hard contact, that's when good things happen. And yeah, 2015. Things, good things did happen. And was that a reaction to the different style of pitching, or did you go over there and your hitting coach, like day one, said, "No, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. You should do it this way." No, my first in 2014, my first like three or four months, I was hitting like 260. Like I was doing really bad. Like we're well, not bad, but you know, struggling. You know, making that adjustment, which a lot of form players do when they go over there. So I kind of like sat down. Okay, I got to start laying off this pitch. I got to see. Okay, how how can I hit this pitch well? And I kind of like broke things down, watched a video, and kind of study pictures, and then I made that adjustment, and that was that. 
And how much did you immerse yourself in the culture? Just looking at your Twitter, it seems like you tweeted in Korean a lot. Were you learning the language? Were you going out and sightseeing a lot? Were you there year-round? How, how attached did you get to Korean culture and, and living in Korea? I was only there for, um, for the season. But, but yes, I, I did study. You know, I wanted to at least know a little bit so I can get around in case, you know, so I don't have to like, rely on a translator all the time. But, you know, like, do I speak well? No, I speak kind of like a baby. I just kind of know vocab words, so I kind of uh-huh. piece it together. And I wish there was more time off. We didn't get much time off, so I couldn't travel as much. I mean, off days, you can go probably, like, you know, get on a bus, but you don't want to, like, go too far away because you're going to come right back that night. So that's one that's one regret I have, but that's one thing. Probably this offseason, next offseason, I might go back out there and you know make like an Asian tour to Korea and Japan, kind of sightsee and kind of visit without worrying about having a game the next day. Was that your first time in uh, in Asia? Yes, yes, it was. Talk about culture shock. <laughs> And could you make a comparison on a quality of competition level to somewhere you played in the big leagues, in the in the minors, or wherever it was? What would you compare it to? Uh, I would compare it to you know doing like some research now on some of the young pot young players in the big leagues. Um, I'm, I'm, t- I'm talking to a few like big leaguers too, and talking about how like the game has changed in the last three years. It, it's mm-hmm. that's just crazy about baseball. How like the fast the turnover is and everything. Yeah, but, but now teams rely on like young pitchers throwing a hundred, like good slider. Compared to like when I was playing back in the day, there's a lot of like veterans. They're throwing you know eighty nine to like ninety one, ninety two, but they had good off speed. They they could locate. You know they they had good thought process. They could kind of get you to dig your own grave. You know, mm-hmm. so it's interesting facing these guys. And I would say in Korea, it's like that. Like guys are really smart. They they studied the holes in their swing. They they like to play chess. I'll say so like. They'll, they'll, they'll throw pitches in certain counts. You're not expecting it. And you're like, why the hell would he throw that? And it's like, oh, they're trying because they think I'm thinking this. So they're trying to attack me here and here. So, yes, yeah, so I would compare it to like facing like veteran pitchers, you know, in the big leagues or AAA that, you know, smart, can nibble, can like locate their off speed and, and go from there. What do you think the hardest pitch you saw there was? Oh, the forkball. The forkball is pretty much like, like a split finger fastball. Uh-huh. But it's the arm speed. It's like they, they throw it the same arm speed as a fastball, but it just drops out of the zone. It's terrible. It's like the worst pitch on the planet. It should be banned. It's, it's so hard <laughs> to hit and lay off. I mean, you, you'll see a lot, a lot of like the big, like a lot, lot of relievers throwing too. Usually like the hard throwing righties, but like a strikeout pitch. It's just so hard to see because like your brain and your eyes, you see the arm speed, it's going to be a fastball, and then you swing, and it's just in the dirt. Yeah, it's really tough. But once you see it more, you can kind of pick up on it, but it's also a really tough pitch. And where did the fastest throwing pitchers top out at, roughly? Henry Sosa threw about 157. And that was, and he's that's like the 95, 96. Uh-huh. Yeah, like probably the hardest throwers would be foreigners. And hardest throwing Korean pitcher, I would do for next. And he was like 154. So he had like 93, 94. Yeah, so I would say like no, nobody hit a hundred mm-hmm. over there, but yeah, like maybe one or two guys over ninety five, and then yeah, there's a little bunch about you know, ninety two, ninety five. How quickly did you get good at doing that math in your head from kph <laughs> to miles an hour? <laughs> well, you see it all the time, so yeah. The, <laughs> the first year I was like one forty four, like what? What is that? <laughs> and then like first thing, okay, yeah, that's about eighty eight. Okay, this guy's done by 83, he's got, you know, 94. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting, like, seeing on the board, like, damn, this guy's throwing 160, like, 
I'm used to seeing like 88, 90, not like 160 or like 135. It's funny. And in your MVP year, as Michael mentioned, you hit 47 home runs. You also stole 40 bases, which had not really been a big part of your game in the state. So was it easier to steal bases there? Did they pay close attention to the running game? What what made you suddenly turn into a base stealer also? Well, in the States, I got shut down. Like, I've had, like, in 2008, 2009, I had a lot of, like, leg problems. So the Jays kind of shut me down, and the Mariners kind of, like, you know, told me just to worry about hitting, don't worry about stealing. So I went over there before that season, actually. I fed out with the info coach, and I was like, okay, I'm going to steal all the time. I thought, see what I can do. Like, I mean, like, a, a, a bag a week, yeah, that's not bad. That's like 20 bags, 20, 30 bags. So I was, like, really focused on, you know, because I knew I'd be getting walked, too. So I'm like, okay, if they're going to walk me, I might as well run. You know, I'm just going to sit there, and, you know, I'm not like a 300-pound DH, you know, I can still move. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so we sat down and, like, studied video, and, um, our first base coach was like, is the stolen base king in Korea. So he was like a genius. So he taught me a lot of stuff about picking up signs and tips. And that helped me a ton. So yeah, I just stole and then everything was good. Uh-huh. And if you're being more aggressive and you know, you're running on a, a defense that's into trick plays and stuff like that, did you ever fall for whatever the Korean equivalent of the hidden ball trick is or anything like that? No chance. No way. <laughs> It's so embarrassing, though. No. <laughs> no, I would try to, to stay locked in and <laughs> don't don't become an internet sensation based on that. <laughs> so, how do you set expectations for yourself coming back over here now? You know, you you look at your stats from when you were in the big leagues before, and you were slugging, you know, around four thirty in your in your few years in the big leagues, and then you go over there and you're slugging six hundred, seven hundred something, and you think that you actually became a better hitter while you were there so maybe you'd expect some improvement but obviously not quite Barry Bond stats so do you have any targets in mind any numbers that you're sort of thinking okay this is how good I think I am in the major leagues now no no I I'm, I'm a guy I don't like having goals like that I mean hitting my goal is hit 20 home runs and then like will increase when I hit that mark you know, I'm just trying to trust the process. You know, I don't want to get caught up in trying to do too much. Which is what happened when I first got called up years ago. I was trying to do too much, and I got stressed out, and I got sent down, and it was just brutal. So, so now I'm just focused. I'm like, I'm focusing all of my effort on just like staying attentive to the task and my job and just like my work. So as long as I do the right thing day in and day out, in terms of like my stretching and like studying pictures and like my, my swing work, if I keep everything mechanically sound, then things will kind of you know, come to fruition on the field. So, And how how much does knowing that you've got a spot in the lineup, like knowing that the Brewers have invested, you know, a three-year contract in you, sets you at ease as opposed to trying to fight for playing time or even fight to stay in the majors like you were in Toronto? Oh, it means everything. But, I mean, that was like my biggest, you know, thing I told my agent. I said, hey, like, you know, it'd be nice to have a multi-year second. So I'll play every day and I'll know I'll be in the lineup, you know, unless I'm doing terrible. But it's like, I know it's my job. I can focus on playing and not worry about who's behind me. Oh, this guy's 22, the prospect, he's coming up. But as a, as a ball player, that's probably the worst thing in the world. Like, you see it in AAA all the time. This guy's just, like, stressed out about prospects. And this guy's going here and here. And it's like, how come I'm not getting any respect? Or, it's brutal. I mean, it definitely worries on me. So it's nice for me to actually have a job so I can focus on doing my job and not stress out over things out of my control. Was the park you were playing in with the dinos, was that a hitter's park, would you say? Or did it skew in, in one direction or another? 
Yeah, I would say it was a hitter's park. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say there's only two big parks in the league, and even then, I mean, there's nothing like um, what's that park? Norfolk in Norfolk, Virginia. Like that park is like a graveyard. You can crush it as hard as you could, and ball go nowhere. Uh-huh. You got the wind coming in off the the harbor there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I've seen guys crush balls, and pitchers kind of like to smile. Like, oh, normal flyout. Okay, cool. Uh, but but there they yeah, there's big parks, but if you hit it, it's gonna go, you know. And also there, there's like some really small parks too, where it's just like you you butt, it'll probably be a home run, you know. So, but my, I'd say my park is probably in the middle in terms of like you know wind and you know ball going out. And it, was, it was a nice park all the way around, so yeah, I got lucky. So you mentioned how quick the turnover is in the big leagues, and you know it's like your Rip Van Winkle or something waking up from a, a long nap, and suddenly there are all these different players and pitchers who weren't there four years ago when you were last there. So how are you preparing? Are are you kind of trying to f- scout these guys and familiarize yourself and watch video so that you won't have to learn everything in spring training? Are you doing anything in advance to kind of catch up? Yeah, I mean, luckily it's 2016, so YouTube is huge. There's videos on everybody now on, on MLB.com. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely using that, especially I never played in the National League before. So, so i got to learn all these parks and, you know, the, the Reds players and Phillies and all these guys. It's just like, it's different, but I mean, it's fun. I mean, I'm bored anyways. I'm not married. I have no kids. So I just sit here and work out all day. So just <laughs> watching videos on these guys and seeing their pitches, it's like, you know, killing time. It's good. Mm-hmm. And so what did you hear from the Brewers about, obviously they're very enthusiastic about you, they essentially chose you over Chris Carter, who just came off a 41 home run season, and they gave you three years, I mean, they are clearly all in, so what did they tell you, from from what I read, they scouted you exclusively via video, and, and didn't even see you in person over there, I don't know whether that's accurate or not, but what did you hear from them about what gave them so much confidence that you'd be able to to bring back what you learned over there? I don't know. <laughs> what they told me, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, like I heard rumors about teams that were interested in me, and like I'd never heard about the Brewers. And then like as soon as contact started between you know, the Brewers and my agent, things heated up really fast. And, and yeah, I heard the same thing, that, you know, they, they watched a lot of video, and, um, and they're really excited. And I mean, like David Stern's the GM with the old GM for the Astros. So I, I don't know if, he saw me play when I played that game in Oklahoma City. Uh, I don't know, but I'm definitely not complaining one bit. I mean, I'm happy <laughs> sure. that they, they believe in me. So yeah, so that definitely gives me an edge and kind of, you know, I want to make sure that, that they return on their investment. Yeah. They get a return on their investment. Were you expecting to have to prove yourself more? You know, essentially, were you were you expecting to have to come in on a, a one-year deal or something wherever you ended up and, and show that – the improvement was real before someone would commit long term, or, or were you hoping right at the right from the start that this would be the the kind of contract you ended up with? It's actually really crazy. Like in terms of like, I'll say three months ago, I had no idea I'd be back in the states. You know, because like obviously, like when, when guys go away overseas, it's like a black hole. It's like you stay there, or you, you go to Japan, or if you do come back, it's like a you know a, like a one year deal or a minor league deal. But to have like a long term deal, I had no idea. So. You know, three or four months ago, I thought I'd be in Japan. You know, I thought that, you know, I can get a three-year deal over there and then and maybe, you know, I'll do well, keep, keep my body healthy and everything, and then I can sign another contract. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, like, you know, the Brewers came calling. It's like, wow, I never thought I'd be back here. So, like, even now, like, to this day, like, after I signed my deal well, a week ago, 
I, I wake up every day like, wow, I never thought I'd be back in the state. <laughs> now I'm back. It shows you how crazy life is. You know, you have no idea what's going to happen, what opportunities can present itself and everything. So, yeah, I'm definitely happy with the decision and take it day by day and enjoy it. And how much did you keep up with uh, American baseball while you were gone? Because, you know, I, I imagine you've got friends you keep in touch with, but even if you were going to watch MLB.TV after your own games were over, the games are on in the middle of the night or something like that. So do you find yourself having to, like, do homework? Like, oh, wow, Zach Greinke's on the Diamondbacks now. Like, I had no idea that that was, you know, that was a thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Actually, me, me and my teammates and, and um, for NC were just, like, all the time, like, this guy's with who? Like, Oh, this guy's with so and so. It's like we have to like always like look up like you know the the baseball reference of the cube, find out where our old teammates are and stuff like that. But for me, like my my morning routine over there, so I get up like at nine or ten and I always watch the home run highlights. So I go on MLB.com. You know they have all the home runs, and so I would just watch those all day. Like oh, 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 oh that was a good swing. That was a good swing. Like, oh, oh, that nasty. Who's this guy? You know, like like Dancy Swanson. I'm like, who is this guy? And it's always the first first pick. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, it's like you go over there and it's like there's so many novices like I'm dealing with other like, Korean players, like trying to get, get to know them, but kind of also get to know like the new up and coming like prospects and the studs. So yeah, just like learning about these guys and kind of getting a, um, a gauge on what I'll be competing against. Yeah, it's fun. And what are you going to miss about Korea? Is there like a food that you're not sure that you're going to be able to get in Milwaukee or something like that? Well, I'm sure there's Korean restaurants everywhere, but I'm going to miss like how fresh the food is. And I mean, over there, it's like literally from like the farm or like the slaughterhouse to the restaurant. I mean, it's just like the meat's fresh, the vegetables are as fresh as you can get. And, and actually, like, for a few weeks when I came back to the USA, like my, my stomach was messed up for a while. Because I'm so used to eating like that good, organic, clean food. And you come here with all the chemicals and all that, you know, like processed foods. But I'm definitely going to miss like that clean, like my diet. Like, my diet was pretty much just meat and veggies, you know, or occasionally, you know, some candy but, but for the most part uh vegetables and meat so i'm definitely gonna miss that but there's meat and veggies everywhere so i'll yeah. be okay well you can get you can get fresh food in wisconsin you know i lived in wisconsin for a year and found the the fried fish and the cheese curds to be extremely fresh right off the the farm <laughs> <laughs> yeah i will be crushing that believe me <laughs> All right. Well, is there uh, is there like an Eric Thames fan club in Korea that was devastated by this move, or are they thrilled that you get to to go back and show that the performance was real? Actually, it's weird. Like I thought that people would be like really like either like, sad or you know angry or not care, but yeah, like, the fans are like, really excited. Like I'm coming back to the states. Like it's it's shocking to me, but it just shows how genuine the fans are there, and like they really they really care. Like they're so like passionate and like sweet you know it's like it's very very uplifting to kind of see people that passionate about about baseball and they just want me to do well i mean like on instagram i said my you know, my still well everybody's like, oh, we're, we're now brewers fans like you know good luck fighting you know all that stuff and like, oh, thank you and i appreciate that all right well congratulations on the contract and good luck relearning the league and uh, we're looking forward to watching you in the next few years so thanks for coming on all right, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, so we have come to the end of this week's episode, and we got to a, a ton of trades. We didn't get to every move. There was just too much to keep up with this week. The winter meetings really delivered this year. So we'll be back early next week with a probably less eventful 
week to cover. We but... can talk about, you know, stretch <laughs> out, spend some time talking about the intricacies of playing center field in, in cores and whether yes. Ian Desmond might adapt to that if he doesn't move to first base. Right. <laughs> Could double back and get those holiday deals in. Get the we Wilson will get Ramos. Wilson Ramos <laughs> into this podcast. <laughs> all right. So that will do it. We will talk to you all very soon. 